Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. Truly, thank you for that. That was so helpful. And thank you, Langmans. I, uh, I was just reflecting back. When I was in high school, uh, I was on the football team in my first year, and it was a, a varsity football team, and so the grade 9s and the grade 12s were on the same team. And uh, if you've ever been in a scenario like that, you know that the grade 9s are not exactly highly esteemed on such a team. We don't bring much to the mix, especially in a physical sport like football. Uh, and so we were just there, kind of the runts. Uh, I remember my one friend, one time on the field, one of the older guys ran up and, and drop kicked him in the back, just because, because we're mean, right? And, uh, and we knew that we didn't fit on this team, but we were there. But there was this one grade 12 who, for no reason, was bringing us under his wing. You know, he'd sit with us in the change room, and he'd invite us into his workout routines to try and get us up to speed. And, you know, you look back on those little things, and you think, well, why would he do that? Like, it didn't benefit him in any way, uh, but he did it because he was kind. He was kind. He condescended down to us because he was kind. And as we think this year about the incarnation, this is obviously significantly greater than a grade 12 spending time with the grade nines on the football team. But I want to invite you to marvel at the kindness of God and to marvel at the scandal and the mystery. You know, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and he has existed eternally. And he is holy, holy, holy. And have you ever thought about how ridiculous it is that the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, condescended down to, to be a fetus? in a womb, to, to be birthed, to be cold, to cry as a baby, to have his diaper changed by his mother, to grow and to learn like us. He, he came to us so that he could live with us and identify with us, so that he could bear our sin for us, so that he could die for us, so that he could save us. And all of that begins here at the manger but the mystery is that it actually began before the beginning of time. And it's marvelous. And it ought to keep our jaw on the floor all December long as we just fix our eyes on this mystery and say, God, help us to understand. And so as we marvel at the mystery this year, we're turning to Matthew's genealogy to aid our marveling. Uh, he helps us to see just how beautiful and and mysterious and scandalous it truly is, what God has done in the incarnation. And so I'm going to read to you from, from Matthew's genealogy. This is in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, you can see this on the screen. Let this aid our worship this year. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. We'll pause there. So if you remember last week, what is the primary purpose of this genealogy in Matthew's Gospel? Who can remember? The primary purpose of this genealogy. Yeah, Lincoln, come on, go for it. What do you think? That is exactly right. To prove that Jesus was a, a true descendant of David. That is the primary purpose of this genealogy. But it's not the only purpose. See, Matthew is capable of doing more thing at once. More, more thing than one at a time. 
And in this genealogy, he includes five women. And if his only purpose was to prove that Jesus was a descendant from the line of David, he wouldn't need to include these women, but he does. He includes them for a purpose. And last week, we looked at the fact that he included the story of Tamar. And and we took from that that he pointed us back to this family and reminded us, as we think about Judah and we think about Tamar, that this was a broken situation. That God didn't just insert himself into, I mean, imagine, the, the holy, holy, holy God. You might think that he would find the most perfect family, you know, the most spotless family, the closest thing to a holy family, and insert himself there as a commendation. Instead, he inserts himself into this broken, dysfunctional, horrifying family that's tainted by sin. He inserts himself there. And that's who our God is. He's the God who comes into the mess to bring us out into glory. So we saw saw that last week. But this week, he's pointing our attention to Rahab. And we find the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. So would you please turn there with me in your Bible, Joshua chapter 2. You're going to find that near the beginning of your Bible. It's the sixth book in your Bible. And as you turn there, I want to give you a bit of the backstory just so that we can hear this as we should. At this point in the Old Testament, God has delivered his people out of Egypt miraculously, wonderfully, powerfully. You remember he led them through with a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They came to the Red Sea and they were stuck and God said, that's okay. And he opened up the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. And Pharaoh's army tried to follow them, and he crushed them with the Red Sea. He gave this army of of slaves victory over powerful armies. He gave them his law. He revealed himself to them in a, a powerful way. And then he brought them right to the cusp of the land of promise. And he said, enter in. I'm going to give this to you. But even after all that they had seen, the Israelites, in fear, in unbelief, turned away. And therefore, they were sentenced to wander in the desert for the rest of their lives for 40 years. That whole generation that had seen the powerful works of God and yet that had succumbed to unbelief were not allowed to enter into the promised land. But now here we are in Joshua chapter 2, and that generation has, has died out. And now the little ones, the children who witnessed all of these things, have grown up. And they're led by a man named Joshua, and they're brought to the promised land, and they're entering in. And they're not going to do what their parents did. Right? They're going to enter in, they're going to take hold of what God has promised to them, and they're flooding into the land, and the first city in their way is the city of Jericho. Jericho, the home of a woman named Rahab. That's where we pick up in the text. So here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Joshua chapter 2, I'm going to read all the way to the end of verse 21. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went, and they came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. For they have come to search out all the land. But the, women, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate, I did not know where they were from. When the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. 
So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so that's, that's a long story, but there's lots here for us to ponder. And as we begin to pull out of this text what we want to see, I would say this. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament, it is always a helpful gift when in the New Testament, the apostles have picked up the story and explained it for you. And such is the case with the story of Rahab. Not only does Matthew pick it up in his genealogy, but we also find Rahab in the book of Hebrews. And the author of the Hebrews points to this story, and he says that she is actually an example of faith. So as we read the story of Rahab, and we ask, well, what are we supposed to see? The author of the Hebrews pulls us in, and he says, you're supposed to see faith. So that being said, if we want to understand why Matthew might include her in this list, we're going to need to read this story the way the apostles told us to. We're supposed to see here an example of faith. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So that's what this is. It's a story of faith, and we're going to ask the question, what does this story teach us about faith? Well, first, it teaches us that faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Look at verse 9. Let me read this again. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? How does she know these things? For we have heard 
how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. For we have heard. Think about this woman, this this pagan woman living in a pagan city who's worshipped pagan gods. She's never given a thought to the God of Israel. She's never, she's never thought to. She's never heard of him. But now there are rumblings in the city and there are rumors going around about this powerful God. This powerful God who parts the seas. This powerful God who has empowered an army. This fledgling army of slaves that is now conquering kings in their wake. People are talking. Rumors are spreading. The great redemptive works of God percolating through the city. And Rahab heard and she believed. Faith comes by hearing. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 10. You've heard this. Let me read this to you. Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We believe as we hear. Can I just, before we go any further, how sweet would it be if the great redemptive works of God were being gossiped about in this city? If there were rumblings and rumors about the God who transforms lives? about the God who redeems marriages, about the God who takes broken, sinful people and sets their feet upon the rock and changes them. How beautiful would it be if the prostitutes at the outskirts of this city heard that there's a God who can change their story? That's what happened here in Jericho. It's beautiful. Faith comes by hearing. But before we can move on from this point, we do need to acknowledge something else that we see in the text that's related Because we're reminded here of the sad reality that not everyone who hears believes. The entire city had heard the news. Everyone was discussing it. But only Ahab responded to what she'd heard with faith. We should see that too. John Calvin notes here, We see then how in a case where all received the same intelligence, she, in the application of it, went far beyond her countrymen. For the rest of the city, as they heard about this God who changes everything, it prompted them to be on high alert, prompted them to bolster their defenses. It prompted them to be on guard because there's a God who's going to change our lives. They didn't want any of it. But Rahab, hearing the same report as her countrymen, recognized the truth behind the evidence. And hearing, she declared in faith, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab understood, this isn't the time for bolstering defenses. This God just parted the Red Sea. It's never parted before. It's never going to part again. This army of slaves are conquering kings in their wake, including Pharaoh. This isn't a time for us to, to check our walls and put guards at the post. This is a time for us to bow before the king of heaven and earth. That's what she sees. He's the one who's at work. He has to be. He's the one who's about to wage war with Jericho. Nothing else can explain this evidence that Rahab is seeing. Her her, her countrymen heard, but they didn't see the truth. Rahab heard, and she lived. 
Because faith enables us to hear what we need to hear and to see what we need to see. Charles Spurgeon famously said, the same sun which melts the wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. And we have all witnessed this painful truth, haven't we? Two sons sit under the preaching of the gospel. One son walks with the Lord. One walks away and hates the church and hates Jesus Christ. Two neighbors hear the gospel. One comes with you on a Sunday. The other stops sending Christmas cards. Two co-workers hear the gospel. One leans in. The other reports you. The same gospel, the same evidence. Yet one heart is melted, the other is hardened. And we're reminded in this story that we, we can't control the results We don't know who will respond with Rahab, but we must keep preaching because faith comes by hearing. And we have no idea how many Rahabs are in our midst. So we preach. Second, we learn here that faith takes a side. See, when the Israelite spies had hid themselves in the house of Rahab the prostitute, they had put her in a really dangerous position. And uh, by the way, just every once in a while people comment on, well, why were they at the house of a prostitute, uh, insinuating that maybe something had happened. And there's nothing in the text that suggests that anything, uh, anything, you know, happened. That's not, couldn't find the words. (laughs) It was worse when you don't find the words, isn't it? There's no evidence to suggest that something like that happened. They were spies. They were trying to, to operate in secret. And if you're looking for a place to spend the night that values secrecy, the house of a prostitute is a safe place to stay. So that seems to be what happened here. But somehow, somebody saw them enter into this house, and a report made its way to the king. And so the king sent his guards to this house, at which point Rahab is now forced into a decision. Because if she is found to be harboring these spies, she will suffer the same death that they receive The ancient law code of Hammurabi, for example, says, if felons are banded together in an alewife's, that is a prostitute or an innkeeper's house, and she has not hailed them, sent them to the palace, then the alewife shall be put to death. Meaning, Rahab, here on this unsuspecting night, has found herself placed into a a life-threatening decision. And in this moment, she can decide... What is she going to do? Is she going to lay her life on the line for the sake of these spies that she just met? Or is she going to make peace with the king? And she could very easily do that. But Rahab counted the cost, and she chose to side with the spies. And here, the New Testament authors are pointing us back and saying, this is an example of faith that we need to learn from. In siding with the Israelites, not only was Rahab risking her own life, because, again, if she's found out, she's dead, But on the flip side, if she sides with the spies and they're right and they're the victors, realize Rahab is going to lose the life that she knew. If the spies are the victors, that means that the city that Rahab's grown up in is going to be destroyed. All all the comforts that she's enjoyed for her life are going to be gone. Her her livelihood, her profession, it's, it's going to change. And yet counting the cost, she chooses to pay the price. Why is that? Why is that? Well, she tells us. It's it's because Rahab's eyes had been opened to see the living God, the God of heaven and earth, and seeing him, all of her fears were reoriented. She should be scared of these guards. She should be scared of these spies. She's scared of the living God. 
Her fears be reoriented, right? If God has promised this land to Israel, then he's going to give it to them. The God who parts the waters can give them the land. There's no walls, there's no armies, there's no circumstances that are going to stand in this God's way. Thus Rahab deceives the soldiers at the door, and she sides with the men who are hiding on her roof, because those men on the roof were on the side of the living God. And that's the side she needed to be on. Proverbs 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when our eyes are open to see him in his holiness and his righteousness and to see our sin and to see our position before him, it changes everything. It changes the way that we count the cost in our lives. Rahab saw and she acted. She surrendered her former life for the sake of the spies. And then she turned to them and she laid hold of them and she said, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, and my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them. Deliver our lives from death. See, Rahab sees that these men could have stayed anywhere, but for some reason they'd wound up at her door. And here in this moment, she has an opportunity for an entirely different life. She has an opportunity for salvation for her family, and she seizes the opportunity. We're meant to see that. Swear to me, she says. Swear to me that you'll do for me what I did for you. Swear to me that my family will be spared when God gives you victory over the city. There's this boldness, this sweet, she, she won't let go. And I, we're meant to see that, because that's what real faith does. Real faith acts. It responds. It parts ways with the world, and it takes a side. When with the eyes of faith, we see our desperate situation, and we see a way of escape, We lay hold and we cling for all that we're worth. When we really see, we lay hold of Jesus Christ for all that we're worth. Like the woman who suffered from bleeding for her whole life in the Gospels. Remember that story? She saw Jesus passing through and so she reached through the crowd and she laid hold of him in faith. She was healed. And so too do we lay hold of Jesus with all that we're worth. That's a very big part of what we're going to do this morning as we come to the Lord's table. As we come to the Lord's table, it is a tangible way of saying that we are laying hold to this promise of God. It's a way of identifying physically, visibly, that we have parted with the world and we have, we have taken a side. We are on the side of the crucified Jesus Christ. That's our King. That's our Lord. This is our hope. This is our salvation. And so we take the bread and we take the cup and we partake. And in doing so, we say, Jesus didn't just die for any sin. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus didn't just bring salvation in general. He brought salvation for me, and I am laying hold of him, and I am partaking, and I am trusting in this, because I am with him. Finally, this story teaches us that faith follows through. So the spies tell Rahab in verse 18, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And she responds in verse 21, According to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This is a fascinating story. We know there's nothing magic about the scarlet cord. And there's nothing magic about Rahab's house. 
As is often the case in God's plan, the way of escape, the way of victory, seems borderline ridiculous. Like when the Israelites painted their doorposts with blood before the Passover. Like when the Israelites marched around the wall of Jericho seven times and blew their trumpets. Like when Jesus died on a Roman cross with a crown of thorns on his head. Our God is a God who loves to bring about victory in the unlikeliest of places. And he calls us to trust in his plans of salvation that make no earthly sense. Plans that look like foolishness to the world. And as the world mocks and laughs, faith trusts God's plan. Faith follows through. And in faith, Rahab, sending these spies away, hangs this scarlet cord out of her home. And she calls upon her mother and her father and her brothers and their families, and she says, you have to stay in this house. You can't go out. I mean, you wonder how many talks they had. Like, no, Rahab, this is ridiculous. I'm going, no, you can't go out. Stay in here. No, Rahab, this is silly. It's just a scarlet cord. Those two, they were just two spies. They probably don't even have the ear of the king. There's no reason to trust his plan. Rahab says, no, stay in the house. And this army's marching around seven days, and on the seventh day, they start to shout, and the city's shaking. And I, I mean, just imagine the scene. Rahab's in the house with her mother and her father and her brothers. Everybody's crowded in this house and huddled up. And you can, there's whimpering, right? Some of the children are whimpering in fear because the city is trembling and shaking. And what hope do we have? This little red cord hanging out our window. And then suddenly there's this loud crash. And I can't even imagine how loud it would be as all of the walls of the city come crumbling down. People are crying out. This is a, a battle scene. This is war. This is siege. And as all of that is taking place and the, the family's squinting and huddled up, they open their eyes and they realize that all of the walls of the city have crashed in except for this little sliver with a little window with a little red scarlet cord. Verse 24 and 25 of chapter 6 tells us how this story concludes. And the Israelites come in and they burn the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into treasury, into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so it happened that a prostitute from Jericho became a member of the family of God. This is Rahab. And Matthew has chosen to include her in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we did last week, I want to conclude our time this morning by asking the question, what are we meant to see here? And it's impossible, I want to acknowledge, it is impossible for us to crawl into the mind of Matthew and to be able to pinpoint exactly what he had in mind as he was writing out this genealogy. That's true. But thanks to these other apostles and these New Testament authors, they're pointing back and showing us what we ought to see. I think we can say two things with great confidence in terms of what we're supposed to see here. First, I think Matthew has included Rahab in this genealogy because she presents us with an illustration of saving faith. Every other time that Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, it's because her display of faith was so commendable as to serve as an example for us. So I already mentioned that she's in the great hall of faith in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. But she's also referenced in the book of James. 
And James points to Rahab as an example of how our faith must be evidenced by works if it's going to have any saving power. So he writes in James 2, 24 to 26, you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James is teaching us here that faith is essentially at its very nature active. Faith is responsive. So for example, if if you say, like, I have faith that my house is on fire, I believe it, and yet you're sitting on your sofa eating chips, watching TV, your actions suggest that you don't actually have faith that your house is on fire. You don't actually believe it, right? Real faith responds and moves and acts. Belief and action, faith and works, go hand in hand. The famous evangelist Billy Graham once said, faith that saves has one distinguishing quality. Saving faith is a faith that produces obedience. It's a faith that brings about a way of life. And James is pointing us to Rahab, and he's saying, you want to talk about faith and works? Look at Rahab. Right? Rahab had faith, but that faith produced action. Rahab actively hid the spies, putting her life in jeopardy. Rahab looked those spies in the eyes, and she said, hey, not only are you going to save me, but you're going to save my family just like I saved you. Rahab helped them to escape out the window. Rahab hung the scarlet cord. Her faith was more than lip service. Her fear of the Lord moved her to action. And that's what faith is. And can I tell you, and, and I know that you can resonate with this, many of you, it is heartbreaking when you see people and they listen to the word of God and, they, and God is speaking to them and you can see tears welling up in their eyes. He's bringing conviction of sin. Right? He, he's revealing to them that there's a great need. You can see that they're sitting under the weight of this burden. They're sensing the fact that they're in a desperate place, that there's a holy God, that there's judgment coming, and you can see the tears in their eyes. And so you lean in with the gospel and you say, listen, there's an escape, there's hope. Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died so that your sins and your burden could be cast on him and you could be forgiven and you could have freedom right now in this very moment. And as you speak and as you plead and as you point, the tears dissipate and a coldness comes over the eyes and they walk away and they climb into their car, still in their sins, still in a dangerous place before our holy God, still bearing that burden on their shoulders when Jesus was right there to take it for them. It's heartbreaking. And yet it is so common. Listen, only one family in Jericho was saved. Only one family in Jericho inherited a new life. Only one person in Jericho responded to the news that she had heard with faith. She seized the opportunity. Like Jacob who wrestled with God and who wouldn't let him go without a blessing. Like the disciples in Matthew 4 who dropped their nets and left their life behind to follow Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful men and women lay hold of it because faith is not passive, it's active. And some of you have been here for a long, long time and you've sat under the preaching of the word for a long, long time. But to this point, you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Do you hear him calling you? 
John Owen describes it this way. When he does speak, he speaks as never man spoke. He speaks with power. And one way or other will make your hearts burn within you as he did to the disciples. Have you ever felt that? Your heart burns within you. He's calling you. It's true and you sense it. And yet, though your heart burns, though you see the way of escape right in front of you, though you've tasted and seen that this world has nothing to offer you, still you're sitting back and you're waiting. Waiting for what? And sitting in that question today, waiting for what? Are you dead in your sins? Did Jesus pay your debt? Is he the way and the truth and the life? Then what are you waiting for? Confess your sins. Lay hold of him in faith. Repent. Believe. Be baptized. Live. Live. Seize the opportunity before the walls come crumbling down. I think that's why Matthew included Rahab in this list. Here at the start of his gospel. Matthew won't permit us to marvel at the manger in sentimentality with the rest of our culture. Matthew would have us see the king has come and he beckons us to respond to him with faith. He beckons us to take a side. Deliverance and hope and life is here, but we must lay hold. I think Matthew wants us to see that, but then secondly and lastly, I think Matthew's included this curious footnote because the life of Rahab is a display of amazing grace. As one commentator observes, the story of Rahab confirms God's welcome to all people, whatever their condition. Christ died for all the world, and the opportunity is available for all to come to him through faith, even the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, which we just studied weeks ago. Listen, the Bible is clear. Even in the New Testament, Rahab was a prostitute. It doesn't gloss over that. She was an adulterer by trade. Under Levitical law, she was worthy of the death sentence. She was a foreigner, meaning she had no claim to the promises of God. She was not a descendant of Abraham. She was just a random woman living in a random city that was destined for destruction. But she knew something was wrong. right? She had heard the rumblings and the rumors She saw the concern on people's faces. Her spirit was restless, but she didn't know how to fix it. She didn't know where to start. She felt trapped. She didn't see a way out. And then, on one fateful night, she hears a knock on her door. And it's two strangers that she's never met before. And they could have knocked on any door in this city, but they knocked on her door. And they came to her house. And that one fateful night changed everything. Rahab was no longer a prostitute. Rahab was no longer doomed to destruction. Rahab and her entire family were given a future and a hope. They were assimilated into the chosen people of God. She was even chosen to be a part of the family tree that would lead to the Messiah King. Why? Because that's what our God does. That's what he does. Hear this this morning. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing. You are here this morning because God brought you here. 
You've been exposed to the gospel because God wanted you to hear it. We too often dismiss as coincidence what is actually the providence of God. See, God sent those spies to Rahab's door. Up until that point, she'd been known as Rahab the prostitute, but God had something better in store for her. And he found her in her house, tucked away in the corner of the city, in the wall of Jerusalem, selling her soul to make a living, to provide for her family. And he opened her eyes, and he changed her story. And now who do we find when we read the New Testament? Rahab the prostitute? No, you find Rahab the hero of faith. Rahab the example of good works. Rahab, a link in the chain that led to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Because that's what God does. This is amazing grace. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would open eyes to see your great mercy today. Lord, and I I pray that for those who came in the doors knowing that they were lost, but I also pray that for those who came in the doors thinking that they were already walking with you, and yet they've been trusting in other things, trusting in their own efforts, trusting in their hard work, trusting in the way that they stack up against others, trusting in self-righteousness, trusting in their devotional life, their Bible reading routine, their prayers, their evangelism, and yet they've never hung the red cord at the window. I pray that today would be the day that we would see that we are all sinners who need a Savior. All of us. We are all lost and broken and in desperate need of the God of heaven and earth to to lay hold of our hearts and to open our eyes and to revive us and renew us. God, I just pray that, that today would be the day when you would awaken faith in our hearts. And God, maybe there are some people here today who, who there is faith, but it's grown dormant. It's, it's not an active faith right now. And uh, they're holding on for dear life. God, I thank you that as we're holding on for dear life, you're holding on to us. And you won't let us go. God, breathe life today. Lord, as we come to Christmas and we marvel at the mystery that you entered into this broken world God, I pray that it would just impress so deeply upon our hearts that you love us. You love us. Why will you love us? I don't understand it. Lord, I, I know us. I know me. We don't deserve this love, and yet it is there in abundance, in so much abundance that none of us in this room has ever, ever come close to fathoming the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. God, would you just allow us to taste it today? And Lord, I pray especially for those who have never, ever in their life tasted the love of God. Would you please today, God, save them? Oh, I ask for this. And I know, God, that we can't muster it up. And there's no song we can sing, and there's no sermon we can preach, and there's no prayer we can pray. But when your spirit moves, and when your word speaks, faith comes by hearing. Lord, I pray that hearing, some would believe today. Lord, I pray a blessing on the rest of our time. Lord, as we respond to you, I pray that we would respond with the gratitude that you deserve. Lord, that just with not just the words of our mouth, but with the posture of our hearts, Lord, 
that you would be pleased with the praises of your people and that our praise would say something to the watching world, that we believe this is true with every fiber of our being. I pray that you'd help us to approach the table today with faith. Lord, I pray that we would be refreshed and renewed as we look to Christ on the cross and we see that the price has been paid. Sinners have been brought into the fold. We are forgiven. As our brother Keith said, the the snow lying on the field right now reminds us that our sins, though they're scarlet, they've been washed white as snow. Lord, what a gift it is. Lord, so please, would you minister to us today in a way that only you can. We need you. Lord, so please move and speak, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?